What can you get with one red paperclip? That was a question that Kyle McDonald asked in July 2005. Uh, his ambition was to see if he could barter his way from one red paperclip to a house. Uh, almost exactly a year after he began, 13 trades later, he signed a lease for a two-storey house. Uh, to run you through it, Kyle traded the paperclip for a fish-shaped pen, which he traded the same day for a hand-sculpted doorknob. Uh, he swapped that for a camp stove and he traded that up to a generator. That got him an instant party. Uh, an instant party is a, a keg of any beer you would like uh, and a neon sign. Apparently that's a party. Um, he then traded that for a snowmobile. Um, to fill you in, he lived in North America or Canada um, where it would actually be useful. Um, and he traded that on for a holiday in a place, called, in, a place in Canada called Yak. Um, surprisingly, he didn't want to go there. He traded that for a trip, uh, that trip for a van, uh, and that he traded for a recording contract. Something get good. Uh, the recording contract he traded for one year's rent in Arizona. Somehow he traded that for an afternoon with the rock star Alice Cooper. Uh, he then seemingly took what, what I thought would be a, a backward step. He swapped the afternoon with Alice for a motorised snow globe of the band Kiss. You know, those little shake them up and little snowfalls. Yeah. Um, he then swapped that for a role in a movie with the actor Corbin Burnson. He used to be on LA Law. I don't know really what he's doing these days, but he's apparently a snow globe nut and was very excited by it. Um, and with that movie role, he then traded it for a house. 51 weeks after starting... His one red paperclip got him a house in Saskatchewan. Did you get it right, Mike? No, still don't. People are going to correct me all night over that one. Um, what I love about Kyle McDonald's work is uh, two things. He has a clear understanding, first of all, of his goal. And secondly, he understands how the world works so that he can make it happen. Uh, it's good, it's right, it's proper to have goals and longings. My concern for us as Christian people is that we get um, either one or both of these things wrong. Either we fail to get our goals in line with the Creator's goals or we fail to work out how this world works. We fail to work out how we can actually live to reach that goals or we fail both of those things. Tonight I want us to be clear. I want us to leave tonight clear about what we are aiming for and I want us to leave tonight realising how that's got to shape the way that we act here and now and especially with regards to your money. And now that I've said the word that you knew I was going to say, uh, we can actually get started. So we come to this final section of Paul's letter to his protege Timothy and a thread has run through the letter uh, and it's visible again. There is a need to defend truth both in teaching and in lifestyle. In verse 20... Timothy is told, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in doing so have wandered from the faith. Uh, truth is at stake in the life of the church and Timothy has to guard that body of teaching that was entrusted to him. Uh, I was chatting recently uh, to a security guard at a football match why big 
burly professional footballers need security guards was slightly confusing to me, but I let that go. Um, his job largely meant standing around, waiting, waiting in case something might happen, in which case then he might react. Hopefully he will react. That is not the sense of guarding that Paul is talking about here. Paul's expectation is that the way you guard truth is by being on the front foot, that, that Timothy will guard the truth by teaching it clearly. He will guard it by living the kind of life of godliness that other people want to copy. The best offence is attack. And when false teaching and when ungodly lifestyle turns up, Timothy has to be the one to take it on, to confront it. And as Paul works off that central thread again, he brings a new shade to it. He brings to Timothy's attention the the dangers and the delights of money. He'd mentioned it already. Paul's mentioned it in chapter 3 that overseers and deacons uh, shouldn't love money. Uh, They shouldn't pursue dishonest gain. In chapter 5, he made special mention of how money was uh, to be used in the caring for those in greatest need, for widows, and also for supporting the the elders, the the older men who direct the affairs of the church well. Uh, But now, Paul brings the issue of money to the centre stage. Uh, Verse 3, chapter 6, verse 3. If anyone teaches false doctrines and doesn't agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who, think, who, uh, who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Uh, false teachers can be spotted by their use of godliness for financial gain. Uh, Paul, in this sense, is using godliness to, to describe the religiosity There is money to be made by being really religious. Uh, If your alarm goes off accidentally on a Sunday morning and you can't get back to sleep in those small hours of the morning, uh, you may find a program, Benny Hinn's program, This Is Your Day. Uh, He's an American televangelist, if you've missed him. Uh, A man whose godliness uh, has brought him an oceanfront mansion valued an estimated US $8.5 million in this exclusive gated community in California. Uh, his godliness means that he stays in hotel rooms, uh, costing, uh, well, starting is US 3000 a night and up from there. Uh, his godliness meant that recently he had to ask for donations towards a new private jet, uh, valued estimate, uh, US $36 million. Uh, Now that guy's an extreme. But don't be naive. There is money to be made from being godly, religious. And at the heart of these false teachers is a longing to to make it here in this world. And for them, well, the gospel's as good a mean as anything else. And their real problem is is myopia, it's short sightedness. Their goals are set on on here and now and what they can get out of this world. Uh, But even worse is they don't even know how this world works and that's why they're loving money. And they're not the only ones who fall into that trap. Uh, See, godliness can be used and abused for financial gain but, but making more money is actually no gain. 
compared to contentment. Have a look at verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. We in Australia live in times of economic boom and yet we're unhappy. We're free to do all sorts of things. We're free to do so much. But in fact, the choices that we have, the amount of choice, works against our desire to be satisfied. An American psychologist, uh, Dr. Schwartz, has done studies to show that the, the huge variety of choices we have actually makes us less content. When, when we pick an ice cream from 32 flavours, uh, we feel the loss deeply of the 31 we're not licking. Um, whereas if we just had four, we'd only go, ah, oh, money missing out on three. Um, our entire market economy is built on this one idea, the idea that the more choice you have, you will be happier. And it's not true. It's not true. Our fallen world cannot satisfy. And the overload of options that we're getting, um, it just robs us of being content. Paul spells out that the real gain of godliness is with contentment. Being satisfied with with what it is that God has given you, that actually makes more sense than chasing money. Uh, In verse 7, there's the very obvious point, you can't take it with you. After Kerry Packer died, uh, people were speculating as to how much money he left. Well, the answer is actually very easy. He left it all. He didn't take any with him. Contentment makes sense of life in a frustrated world like this one. Chasing money doesn't. And even more, contentment will save you from a world of pain. Verse 9, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. There's no shortage of, of commentators on money and how we should treat it and think about it. There's that famous 1980s quote, that greed is good. Clive Hamilton is an Australian social commentator. He's not a Christian. But he has a a philosophy about how we should think about money. In his view, he says it's more to do with really Buddhism than Calvinism. Uh, term Calvinism, it's a brand of Christianity if that doesn't mean anything to you. Um, Hamilton wrote this It is not money and material possessions that are the root of the problem. It is our attachment to them and the way that they condition our thinking, give us our self-definition and rule our lives. This is not the work of a Christian. Um, Sadly, the fact that he thought it had more to do with Buddhism than than Christianity um, shows how, I suppose, bad a job we've done at making what the Bible teaches clear to people (laughs) because it could have come straight out of verse 10, couldn't it? The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's just so obvious that loving money is stupid. Uh, In Hamilton's book, Affluenza, he mentions the American Express Platinum Card and it comes with this promise. For the times when you need assistance with life's little demands, Platinum Concierge is there for you. Times a birthday is mentioned to you a moment before it's belated. 
Or perhaps your anniversary is just around the corner. Simply call your concierge to organise a speedy bouquet and a reservation at the finest restaurant. Uh, essentially, it's a perk for people who neglect their families. Uh, and it goes on to promise uh, that it gives you the time to do the things that matter most. And clearly, that means making more money rather than returning love to the people who are close to you and love you. Businesses are going to keep trying to sell us this lie but any, any careful watcher of the world, Christian or not, will see that the love of money is ruinous for anything that's good. Around 290,000 Australians are problem gamblers. It adds up to uh, over $3 billion in losses annually. And that's disastrous not just for them but for the one and a half million people they directly affect by their bankruptcy, by you know, divorce, suicide... A lost time at work. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And in verse 10, the great concern is how it can destroy your faith. Greed is insidious. Shopping till you drop seems an acceptable behaviour in our society. Even in Christian circles, people seem willing to say that, you know, go shop till you drop. It's more acceptable than something like, you know, smoking which is kind of frowned on in Christian circles. But I've seen discontentment destroy more Christian people's faith than I have seen their nicotine addiction do the same. The love of money is ruinous to what is good. And yet we get into cycles of working longer and harder to make more and more money, which we don't really value, of course. Um, you know, It's not worthy of love and yet we treasure it. You don't need that reading from Ecclesiastes to see that whoever loves money never has money enough. The love of money is like drinking seawater. The more you drink it, the thirstier you become. And what God offers, though, is the freedom that something like Hamilton's book, Affluenza, can't. See, God reveals to us the goal of the whole world. And that means we're free to use what we have here in this world properly. And so the first step for us is taking the long view to make sense of this world. Uh, verse 11 and following. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has, ever seen, whom no one has seen or can see. To him... Be honour and might forever. Amen. Timothy is to avoid loving money and instead pursue the things of God. Uh, and halfway through verse 12 he's told, take hold, grip onto, hang on to eternal life, that hope. One day Jesus is going to come back and when Jesus comes back he is going to judge the living and the dead, every single person. And he will make clear to everyone that he is the one and only King of Kings and the one and only Lord of Lords, the one and only uh, being worthy of all love. 
He will establish that kingdom that can never be shaken or overthrown. Close your eyes for a moment. When I say the name Jesus, what picture pops into your head? You can open your eyes again. I wonder how many of you pictured a mighty warrior king. A one so powerful and holy that there's no, there's no opposition that can stand against him, no force that could fight him. My guess is not many. See, we often speak a lot about what Jesus has done and that's good and that's right. I want us to keep doing that. <laughs> but I don't think we speak much about what Jesus is going to come and do. And because we don't speak about the kingdom that he's going to come and bring, our goals get warped. Our hope gets in the wrong place. And if our hope ends up here rather than the world to come, then it won't stand up. Verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. There is only one goal, one hope that will definitely be achieved and not disappointed, and that's the new kingdom that Jesus will bring. It's placing your hope in God. How do you know if your hope's in God? Draw up two lists. One of everything that you earn in a year and the other, everything you spend. And in ten minutes we could write down at the bottom of the page what your longings are, what your ambitions and loves are. We could work out very easily whether your hope was in God or not. Jesus said that you cannot, lo- you cannot love both God and money. You cannot serve two masters as you'll love one and hate the other, vice versa. Do we believe him? A few weeks ago, um, Paul, our Paul, not the Apostle, but Paul Dale, uh, took us carefully through 1 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, it's that part about how men and women are designed differently by God to serve him in different ways Um, and he started with a long list of disclaimers and I suppose apologies uh, for that passage Uh, knowing it was a difficult sermon uh, for us to hear because it so easily offends our culture I've got no problem with what Paul did Uh, I think it was sensitive really uh, because even from the outset it was going to be a a passage that was going to challenge us radically it's going to be very countercultural. And my sadness when it came to this passage is I didn't feel like I needed to apologise at the start. I didn't think that people would be so offended knowing this passage was going to be preached on that they weren't going to show up tonight to listen. And that might be because, you know, we're all living this out. We're living in the light of God's great future and that affects the way we spend our money. Or it might be just deep down, we, we don't... Th- We don't really believe Jesus. We think we can actually serve God and money just if if you try hard enough. If we're serious about living in light of our eternal future, then it's going to shape what we do with our money. 
Uh, Timothy was told he had to command the rich to be generous and do good. Uh, By and large, we are rich. A recent survey of Australians found that only um, 0.7% of people thought they were in the top 20% wealthiest bracket. Uh, 0.7% thought they were in the top 20, which says there's a lot of delusional people out there. Okay? We're delusional because we just compare, as long as I can name someone who's richer than me, I'm not rich. Um, but on a world scale, you know, the richest 1% of adults are alone own 40% of global assets. Let's spread it out a little. The richest 10% of adults account for 85% of that total. And the bottom half of the world's population, bottom 50%, they barely own 1% of global wealth. Yeah, I agree there, there are degrees of wealth, but on a world scale, just being Australian, we're rich. Even on a scale of Sydney siders, the, the fact that we live around here makes it very difficult for us to claim that we are poor. And therefore, I have to tell you to put your hope in God and not your money. I have to tell you to be, to be doing good and to be generous. I have to tell myself. A church that I won't name dug around in their congregation's giving uh, and they found that single mums in their congregation gave more per head than the young single employed men. That's scary. Uh, They also found that um, between their staff and lay leadership, so uh, including people like parish councillors, Bible study leaders, um, those people uh, gave 80% of the church's budget. Uh, it's scary, it's a good church, it's a faithful Bible teaching church. Now I've no intention of doing the same here, um, partly because I know that, that giving to church is nowhere near the sum of people's generosity. There are all sorts of ways of being generous, not just giving to church, it's one way, loads of ways. Um, I also don't want to do it because I, I think it would compromise the way I think about it. <laughs> um, but the question it raised in my mind was, are we rich people generous? Is that church a bit like, well, me? (laughs) Given that we know the lavish generosity of God, given we know that God didn't spare his own son but gave him up for his enemies, that, that we poor might become rich, given we know that gospel, we've been reading through 1 Timothy where we see God's great concern to see all mankind saved such that he would give up his son. Are we generous people? I was challenged by this question recently. If you knew you were facing an income drop of 20% next year, what would you give up? What would be the first to go? If you want, you can write it down. Uh, But the follow-up is this. Why not voluntarily give that away in the way that Christ did for you? I felt challenged when I was asked it. What you do with your money matters. Not because God wants you to be an ascetic. Um, In verse 17, God gives all things for our enjoyment. He wants us to enjoy things. In fact, we saw in chapter 4 that that, that denying the good things of this world is actually the teaching of demons, not the teaching of God. But generosity is good for you, the giver. Why? Because it's going to guard you from loving money rather than loving God. It's going to guard your deposit in heaven. Uh, Colin MacDonald started with one red paperclip and he had a clear idea of what his goal was. 
and he used it wisely, he understood the way the world worked to get to his goal. I want to say our goal is infinitely better than a two-storey barn in Satchkatchewan. We're looking to heaven. Where there we see in verse 19, it's life that's truly life. Knowing your goal, how are you going to trade things in this world to build the treasure there? I want you to take time out this week and work out what God has given you, uh, both material as well as the gifts that he has given you. And they are your red paper clip to trade, to use, and to use wisely and well. And what are you going to do with each one of them to, to edge closer to that goal, to pursue righteousness, to fight the good fight, to lay up that, that treasure in heaven, to lay hold of eternal life? 1 Timothy as a book is about guarding the truth and if the truth doesn't affect our hopes well we've already lost it and if the truth doesn't affect what you do with what God has lavishly given you we've already lost it let's pray that's not the case